Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Adibusha Prabhu. Good morning, Priti. Good morning, Susanna Peter. Good morning, Jamuna Jaya. William, good morning. Uh, good morning, Urmila Devi Prabhu. We have a very special presenter today, Urmila Devi Prabhu. She is a disciple of Srila Prabhupada. She is a Vanaprastha. Uh, along with her husband, she's been a Vanaprastha since 1996. If you ever wondered what a Vanaprastha devotee looks like, here you go, Urmila Devi Prabhu. Uh, she's a she's a head chair of uh, Shastrik Advisory Committee to the Governing Body Commission. She's uh, and uh, we all find very helpful your points on hermeneutics. I don't know if I pronounced it well. Yes. And everybody was talking about it after that when we shared it in a chat box, chat board. Okay. Thank you very much for tuning in. Welcome to our Shrimad Bhagavatam class. Or your daily Prabhu, the floor is yours. Hare Krishna. Let's not forget to leave some time for questions before eight. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shrimati Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sanivadi Paskatya De Satarane Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Tam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha so it is October 26, 2021, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 9, Chapter 18, King Yayati Regains His Youth, Text 40. Sri Yadar Uvacha Notsahe Jarasastatum Antara Praptayatava Aviditva Sukamgramyam Vaitrishnyam Naitapurusha Sri Yadu Uvacha Yadu, the eldest son, Jayati, replied, Na utsahe, I am not enthusiastic. Jarasa, with your old age and invalidity. Statum, to remain. Antara, while in youth. Praptaya, accepted. Tava, your aviditva, without experiencing, sukham, happiness, gramyam, material or bodily, vaitrishnyam, indifference to material enjoyment, na, does not, eti, Attain Purusha, a person. 
Srila Prabhupada's translation, Yadu replied, My dear father, you have already achieved old age, although you also were a young man. But I do not welcome your old age and invalidity, for unless one enjoys material happiness, one cannot attain renunciation. Srila Prabhupada's purport. Renunciation of material enjoyment is the ultimate goal of human life. Therefore, the Varnashram institution is most scientific. It aims at giving one the facility to return home back to Godhead, which one cannot do without completely renouncing all connections with the material world. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, Niskin Chanasya Bhagavad Bhajan On Mukasya. One who wants to go back home, back to Godhead, must be Nikinchana, free from all affinity for material enjoyment. Brahmane upasam ashrayam. Unless one is fully renounced, one cannot engage in devotional service or stay in Brahman. Devotional service is rendered on the Brahman platform. Therefore, unless one attains the Brahman platform or spiritual platform, one cannot engage in devotional service. Or in other words, a person engaged in devotional service is already on the Brahman platform. Now that seems to be going in a circle, yeah? Prabhupada's saying, you have to be already on the platform of Brahman before you can do devotional service. It says when you do devotional service, you become on the Brahman platform. And he's quoting, One who engages in full devotional service who does not fall down in any circumstance at once transcends the modes of material nature and thus comes to the level of Brahman, as Bhagavad Gita 14.26. If one attains devotional service, therefore he is certainly liberated. Generally, unless one enjoys material happiness, one cannot attain renunciation. Varnashrama, therefore, gives the opportunity for gradual elevation. Yadu, the son of Marajayati, explained that he was unable to give up his youth for he wanted to use it to attain the renounced order in the future. Maharaj Yadu was different from his brothers. As stated in the next verse, Turvasas Chodita Pitra Duhush Chanush Cha Bharata Prachachakshyu Adharman Judge Maharaj Yadu's brothers refused to accept their father's proposal because they were not completely aware of Dharma. To accept orders that follow religious principles, especially the orders of one's father, is very important. Therefore, when the brothers of Maharaj Yadu refused their father's order, this was certainly irreligious. Maharaj Yadu's refusal, however, was religious. As stated in the 10th canto, Yadas cha dharmam shilasya, Maharaj Yadu was completely aware of the principles of religion. The ultimate principle of religion is to engage oneself in devotional service to the Lord. Maharaj Yadu was very eager to engage himself in the Lord's service, but there was an impediment. During youth, the material desire to enjoy the material senses is certainly present, and unless one fully satisfies these lusty desires in youth, there is a chance of one's being disturbed in rendering service to the Lord. We have actually seen that many sannyasis who accept sannyas prematurely, not having satisfied their material desires, fall down because they are disturbed. Therefore, the general process is to go through grahasta life and vanaprastha life and finally come to sannyas and devote oneself completely to the service of the Lord. Maharaj Yadu was ready to accept his father's order and exchange youth for old age because he was confident that the youth taken by his father would be returned. But because this exchange would delay his complete engagement in devotional service, he did not want to accept his father's old age, for he was eager to achieve freedom from disturbances. 
Moreover, among the descendants of Yadu would be Lord Krishna. Therefore, because Yadu was eager to see the Lord's appearance in his dynasty as soon as possible, Yadu refused to accept his father's proposal. This was not irreligious, however, because Yadu's purpose was to serve the Lord. Because Yadu was a faithful servant of the Lord, Lord Krishna appeared in his dynasty. As confirmed in the prayers of Kunti, Yadu Priyasyan Va Vaye. Yadu was very dear to Krishna. Priya means very dear. Who was therefore eager to descend in Yadu's dynasty. In conclusion, Maharaj Yadu should not be considered a Dharmagya, ignorant of religious principles, as the next verse designates his brothers. He was like the four Sanakas, Chatusana, who refused the order of their father, Brahma, for the sake of a better cause, because the four Kumaras wanted to engage themselves completely in the service of the Lord as Brahmacharis. Their refusal to obey their father's order was not irreligious. Wow, this is very complicated, isn't it? Sri Yadu Uvacha, Not Sahe Jarasastatum, Antara Paptayatava, Avititva Sukamgramyam, Vaitrishnam Naiti Purusha. Yadu replied, My dear father, you have already achieved old age, although you also were a young man. But I do not welcome your old age and invalidity, for unless one enjoys material happiness, one cannot attain renunciation. This is very confusing. So, Yayati was a young man, and he was enjoying with Devayani and with Sharmista. And his enjoyment with Sharmista was... was Difficult to assess whether it was religious or not. It was religious because Ksatriya is supposed to give shelter to a woman who wants shelter. And that's his duty. And it was irreligious because his father-in-law had said, don't have a sexual relationship with Sarmista. So he was kind of in a funny position, and when it was found out that he had had a relationship with Sharmista, his wife Devayani was very angry, and then his father-in-law cursed him with old age. And Yayati says to his father-in-law, you know, you're cursing me is also cursing your daughter, because your daughter is still young, and now her husband's an old man. (laughs) Uh, So it's not going to be very pleasant for her. Right? I mean, sometimes we find in this world that very young women marry very old men, and, you know, we always wonder, are they doing it for some other reason? Because how pleasant is it going to be for the young woman? So then the father-in-law said, well, you can exchange your old age for someone else's youth and then give it back to them. So Yayati went to the children he had by Devayani and he went to the children he had by Saramista and they're refusing him. It's interesting that Devayani's children... Uh, she was the, the wife, <laughs> uh, and she was from a Brahmana family, that uh, they refused. And as will be explained as probably said the next verse, their refusal was irreligious. They're like, we don't want to be old. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to be old. And they were just more like your typical youth of 2021 who say to their parents, you know, we're not listening to you. <laughs> we don't care what you say. <laughs> we want to do what we want. You know, the parents say, I don't think you should, you know, no, we're just going to do what we want. So, uh, he's going then to uh, Sharmista's children, and Yadu 
He's, he's like, I'm also not going to do what you want, but the reason I'm not going to do what you want, it's not because I'm not respectful to you, and it's not because I just want to enjoy the world, but it's because I want to prepare myself for my service. And if I accept your old age, it's going to delay my preparation. It's going to be a distraction on my preparation. And so Prabhupada says he's, he's religious. He's actually religious. And of course, it's fascinating that uh, Prabhupada's comparing this refusal of Yadu to become old to the four Kumaras refusing to get married. <laughs> so Yadu's saying, hey, I have to get married. I'm not ready to become old. I have to be married. I have to have a wife. I have to have money. I have to do the things that people normally do when they're young. And the Kumaras are saying, we don't want you. The Kumaras' father, Lord Brahma, was at Lord Brahma, the head of our Sampradaya, was asking the four Kumaras to get married, and they're like, no way. We want to serve Krishna as brahmacharis. Uh, so, you know, how did we figure out what's dharmic and what's not? It, it's very confusing. I mean, Krishna says in, in Bhagavad Gita 9.30 that his devotees are saintly even if they appear to do something that's abominable. And Prabhupada writes there that sometimes the material and spiritual duties are in conflict, that generally the devotees uh, are able to follow both material and spiritual duties, but sometimes they come into conflict instead of paralleling one another. And sometimes for the sake of one's spiritual duties, one has to do something that's abominable in ordinary convention. And reading that, I usually think about... Uh, the fact that many of us, in order to take up Krishna consciousness, we were not obedient to our parents. That we, uh, you know, our parents said, no, I don't want you to take up Krishna consciousness. You know, <laughs> forget it. And we are said to them, forget it. I'm going to take up Krishna consciousness anyway. I, mean, I was fortunate my father was supportive, but my mother wasn't. And so I definitely disobeyed my mother. Here Prabhupada saying how important it is to follow the father. And I definitely disobeyed my mother in joining the Hare Krishna movement. So was that irreligious or not? Was it dharma or not? All right, so we're going to look, to try to answer this question, we're going to look at uh, authorities. Here the father is an authority. And then we're going to look at what's dharma for each of us. And then we're going to look finally at one point Prabhupada makes here in the purport about Krishna's pastimes and Krishna's appearance. So, generally, one should be obedient to one's authorities. So, what is who are our authorities? Well, our authorities are the government. The government is our authority. If the police stop you on the road, you need to pull over your car or you can get arrested. Right? If the government makes a law, you should follow the law. Right? And then we have obedience in our job. We're employed by someone. The employer says, this is our company policy. This is what you have to do. We should be obedient. Um, generally, and, and nobody likes to hear this in 2021, but the idea is that the wife is obedient to the husband. Generally, the children are obedient, should be obedient to the parents. They should be obedient to the teachers. It's, it's quite fascinating that there was a study done by sociologists. Are there universal moral principles? 
are there principles of morality that are followed in every culture and time of the world, irregardless of culture. And they found that there were five. There were five. And uh, one of them is authority. So it's purity, authority, fairness, community, and harm. Don't do any harm. So choose the pure over the impure, follow authority, have things be fair, be loyal to your community, and don't harm others. Of course, how those are defined can be quite different from one culture to another, and the emphasis can be different from one culture to another. So some cultures emphasize loyalty to community more than others do. And if you think about it, there is a biological imperative for obedience to authority. We're born, uh, as humans, we're born extremely helpless. I mean, there are lots of creatures who are, you know, born much more capable, the giraffe that has to stand up and run with the herd soon after birth. We're very helpless, and we're very helpless for quite a long time as humans. So we're strongly dependent uh, in, in ideal normal circumstances on our biological mother and father. Uh, or some other adult who's taking care of us. And we're really dependent to live and to be healthy. You know, if, if the adults taking care of us don't take good care of us, we're messed up often for life, physiologically, psychologically, socially. And so having special regard for these authorities is important for our survival on every level. Also, we're... Uh, we're social creatures, we're kind of herd animals, and as social creatures, most social creatures have some kind of hierarchy in their, in their social structure. And again, if there's not some obedience to the authority in the hierarchy, then the whole herd will suffer. So we have some biological imperative for being uh, especially respectful to authority, that we're, we have principle of being fair in general, we have principle of not harming but there's a special principle of particularly respecting authority. And then I, this is why in every culture, uh, like killing a police officer is a worse crime than killing an ordinary citizen. Because they're in a position of authority. It's considered a much worse crime to kill your parents than to kill somebody else who's not your authority. This is, again, every culture has this concept. However... We all know that someone who's an authority by convention or by position may not always have our best interest in mind. We all know this. We all know there are parents who do not have the best interests of their children in mind. They may be using their children for their own purposes. I mean, there are sometimes extreme cases where parents uh, prostitute their children for their own economic gain. Uh, but even parents who push their children into unsuitable occupations for their parents' own status or in the days of arranged marriage. I mean, one of the main reasons that arranged marriage went out of uh, practice in most of the world is parents who would arrange their children's marriage for the social status or the economic status of the family rather than for the good of the children. And we see husbands don't always have the best interests of their wife in mind. They may, again, uh, be wanting to use their wife for their own purposes. The government may not have the best interests of the citizens in mind. The government may start a war for 
reasons that are not for the good of anybody other than their own pockets and their own prestige. And they may be sending the youthful citizens of their country into possible death and dismemberment and psychological trauma uh, for their own egotistical purposes. Uh, and, of course, uh, sometimes our authorities think they have our best interest in mind, but they don't really know us. I mean, I ran into this myself a few months ago, where uh, someone who has some position of authority over me had asked me, you know, what service do I like to do? And I, I said, this is a service I like to do, and this is a service I don't like to do. And then that authority came to me sometime later and said, I have wonderful news for you that you're going to be able to do such and such service. And I said, but I told you that I, I, I don't want to do that service. Oh, you'll like it once you'll do it, the authority said. And I said, I've done it for years, and I already know I don't like it, and I already know I don't want to do it. And, you know, why are, why are you asking me, you know, as my authority to do something I told you is not suitable for me? So this person thought they had my best interest in mind. Oh, you're going to love this. But the person doesn't, doesn't really know me, doesn't really know what I need. And so this also happens. So we have authorities who are just selfish, and exploitive, and they don't even try to have the best interests of their subordinates in mind. They just use their subordinates for their own purpose. And then we have authorities who think they have the best interests of their subordinates in mind, but they don't. And this situation complicates things, because there may be times when it's our duty to disobey our authorities. And we have examples like this one in the Bhagavatam of this very thing that there's times when one should say no. Now, it is impossible to make some kind of a rule book or some kind of a formula, some kind of a flowchart that will tell us exactly when we should follow our authorities and when we shouldn't. That It's just not possible to do that because the thing is so nuanced and it's so personal and it's so individual. And then there's... You know, you could say, well, there's times you leave your authority altogether. There's times you leave your country. You defect to the enemy of your country. Or, and there's times, you know, you, you leave your parents, you leave your husband, you quit your job, and so forth. And then there's times that you stay in this situation, but you may not be obedient to everything. You know? I find it fascinating that the wife of Ravana is listed. Someone needs to mute. The wife, is Rav, the wife of Ravana is listed as one of the most chaste women in the world. But she strongly disagreed with her husband over the kidnapping of Sita. And Gantari is also a very chaste woman, but she strongly disagreed with her husband over the war with the Pandavas. So they stayed with their husband, they were faithful to their husband, they served their husband. But they were saying, hey, this was wrong. Or Draupadi objecting to being gambled. So sometimes we may say, sorry, this is something I, I'm not going to participate in, something I don't agree with. And sometimes we may say, I'm out of here altogether. Now one should be very careful, because if we only follow our authority when we agree with them, then they're not our authority. Then we're the authority. If we say, I'm only going to follow my authority when I agree with every aspect of everything you do, then there's no meaning to authority. Authority means that I follow even when I don't agree. Uh, so where this line is, is very tricky. Now, the other interesting very point here is that what is best 
for self-realization, what is best for material detachment, what is best for love of God, can be discussed on an absolute level. This is the best thing. But it also can be discussed on an individual level. I mean, here we have that what was best for the Kumaras was, was to skip the Grahasta Ashram, and what was best for Yadu was to go to the Grahasta Ashram as soon as possible, to not have even any kind of delay. What's also fascinating is there's another purport by Srila Prabhupada, I believe it's in the sixth canto, where Adaksha is producing all these children in service to populate the universe with good children. And he produces first 10,000 children. He's a, a demigod, he's not a human. Humans couldn't have 10,000 children. Not, I don't think so. And maybe Genghis Khan had, I don't know. Genghis Khan's DNA is like all over the world. But generally, a human doesn't produce 10,000 children. Anyway, he had 10,000 sons. And he was engaging them in austerity so they could become good married men, good husbands, good fathers. And Nari Muni convinced them to skip the Grahasta Ashram and take immediately to renunciation. Then he had another thousand children. Same thing happened. And Daksha became very angry and he went to Narada and he said, my sons are not going to be stable in their renunciation because they have, will have not gone through married life. You know, the very point Srila Prabhupada's making here, <laughs> Daksha makes that point. But there, Prabhupada doesn't agree with Daksha. And he says, it's not necessary to get material experience in order to become renounced. He said, in fact, you can have lots of material experience and never become renounced. I mean, people in general go through marriage and they don't necessarily become renounced. They may get to age 50 and instead of saying, let me give up material life, they say, let me give up the spouse and find a new one. Happens all the time. You know, the midlife crisis. And so many people are taking birth again and again and again and again and again and again, as Lord Kapila Dave describes in the third canto. They experience the material world, doesn't make them renounced at all, and then they just want to experience again. They want to try it another way. And Prabhupada says, actually experience isn't necessary, and it isn't the cause of renunciation. Rather, it's the mercy of the Lord that's the cause of renunciation. But here in this part, Prabhupada's saying that this experience is generally necessary. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that what's best is what's best for each individual at a particular time in that individual's life. And that fact really points to the necessity of having good authorities who actually care about ourself, our own interests, and who actually know us. Because only an authority who really knows about our self-interest and can guide us properly can help each of us figure out what's best for our Krishna consciousness at what time. I mean, here Yadu is figuring it out himself, apparently. Now, we have to be extremely careful if we have a position of authority over others to try to impose what's best for me on somebody else. You know, what's best for me at this point in time may not be, wasn't best for me at another point of time. You know, I was introduced as having been in the Vanaprasta Ashram since 96. I was in the Grahasta Ashram from 73 to 96. I personally have seen in my own life the truth of what Srila Prabhupada says in this purport, that 
becoming renounced is much easier if you've already been a grahasta. That when the mind says, oh, I think I'd like to enjoy the world, you say to the mind, you already did that. And the mind goes, oh yeah, right. And it's quiet. And you say to the mind, you did that. Some of it was nice, some of it was not nice. You already had all that. You got to see it. As one of my guard brothers wrote in a song, I've smelled the rose, i felt the thorns, you know. I've had it. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then the mind's quiet. But if you've never had it, then the mind's going, oh, like there was that song, what was her name? Uh, Joni Mitchell, I think, both sides now, where she talks about you know, is love terrible or is it wonderful? Is life terrible or is life wonderful? I don't know, but I tend to just be an illusion. And if you haven't experienced something, then you might think, oh, it's just wonderful. Or you might think, oh, it's just terrible. And either way, you're attached to reverse. But when you experience it, you, you're neutral. Of course, just experiencing it is not sufficient. One has to be able to understand one's experience. So just getting married and having kids and having a house and having a bank account and a car is not going to make anybody renounced. But if you do that in Krishna consciousness, in Krishna's service, then it can be a very, very powerful tool toward renunciation. But for some people, that's the worst thing to do. For some people, they need to go immediately from the Brahmacharya Ashram to the Vanaprastash. Some people need to marry more than once. Prabhupada talked about a friend of his who's, um, he never had any children. His wife died and he was uh, alone. And so even though he was older, he remarried a friend of his in his youth. And in those days, uh, generally uh, older women weren't getting married, so he remarried a younger woman. And he said he was a very saintly person. So that was, you know, for him to marry a second time when he was older was proper. I mean, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu married a second time after his wife died, so did Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And for other people, that would be the most terrible thing to do. You know, just like it says in the Nectar of Instruction that who who's, who was would not live at Radhakund? Does that mean everybody should jump up and go live at Radhakund? So, you, know, you can say, being sannyas is the best place. I mean, it seems that Prabhupada in this purport is equating sannyas with Krishna consciousness. But sannyas isn't the best position for everyone. Some people should never take sannyas. And some people should take sannyas, but not now. And some people should take sannyas right now. Well, some people should be soldiers, and some people should definitely not be soldiers. I mean, it, it just... What's going to help one's Krishna consciousness is going to be different from one person to the other. But whatever one does, one has to do it in Krishna consciousness or it's all useless. Being married without Krishna consciousness, being a sannyasi without Krishna consciousness, fighting on the battlefield with the Kurus, becoming a beggar in the Himalayas. Without Krishna consciousness, it's all, it's all useless. Therefore, Mama Nusram Yudhichar, whatever you do, do for me, Krishna says. And it's interesting that the Vedas in general, and Vaishnava practice in particular, has a variety of uh, activities for various persons. So we should be very careful to do what's best for me at this particular point in time. What's best for me 
and what's best for me now, not what's best in some theoretical uh, pie in the sky or what's best for somebody else. I can't copy-paste somebody else's life onto mine. And sometimes what's dharma in general is not dharma for me. That's even freakier. You know, here Yadu is apparently violating dharma, but he's not. And his brothers did violate dharma. They appeared to be doing the same thing. Yadu and his brothers all appeared to be doing the same thing, but the brothers were violating dharma and Yadu was not. This is subtle. So we should take great care to get guidance about what we do, and we should be very careful about judging others. It's very easy to say, oh, this is my life. This is what it says in the Shastra, and therefore this person is right and this person is wrong. We may be wrong. We may be wrong. Maybe the other person is actually proper. Maybe someone who appears to be properly situated is not, and maybe someone who appears not to be properly situated is. And in the introduction, you talked about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is where we study this stuff and you're able to figure out how do we figure out what's dharma and what's not. Now, the ultimate rightness is facilitating Krishna. That's the ultimate rightness, the ultimate dharma. Sarva dharma All subordinate dharmas are aiming at this one dharma of loving God. And if we follow ordinary dharmas and we don't come to love of God, we've just wasted our time. And if we come to love of God, all the ordinary dharmas are being taken care of. Like if you serve Krishna, you're already liberated. You can't serve Krishna unless you're liberated, but if you just jump in and serve Krishna, you'll become liberated automatically. And if I work to serve Krishna, all the ordinary dharmas will be taken care of and adjusted, even if they appear to be really out of order. We have people who join the Krishna consciousness movement and their life by ordinary dharma seems really out of order. You know, they're on their third marriage and they have children from this and that and the other, and we can say, well, you're really not following Varnashram, but if you take to Krishna consciousness, everything becomes adjusted. Now here, Yadu is concerned about Krishna's leelas, that Krishna is going to appear in his family. And therefore, he wants to hurry up and have a family. <laughs> He's got to hurry up and, and get married and have kids so Krishna can appear in his family. Like we see Vasudeva and Devaki, who knew that Krishna would be their eighth child, so even though Kamsa was killing their children, they hurried up and had kids. What's interesting also is that Yadu, along with his brothers, were cursed that they could never become rulers because they had disobeyed their fathers. But this curse ended up to facilitate Krishna's leela. When Krishna uh, killed Kamsa, he asked Ugrasena to rule. And he said, we Yadus, we are, we're cursed by, Yaya, by Yayati because of Yadu's refusal, and therefore we cannot rule. This made Krishna a prince, a perpetual prince, rather than a king. Krishna likes to be a prince. And, of course, in Vaikuntha, he's the king. He's the king of kings. In Vaikuntha, as Ramachandra, he's the king. But in Vrindavan, Nandamaraj is the king. Krishna is the prince. And in Mathurindwarka, Ugrasena is the king, and Krishna is the prince. And it's far more enjoyable to be a prince than to be a king. You don't have all the responsibilities of being a king. Uh, but you have the enjoyments of being a king, of being royalty. And so Krishna's intimate leelas in Dwarka, Mathura, and Vrindavan, far intimate than in Vaikuntha and Ayodhya, are facilitated by Yadu being, well, I can't be the king. Yadu was cursed, and I'm in the Yadu dynasty. Uh, uh, so this is uh, some, some sweetness here 
in the Leela that's going on, that's really not apparent on, on the surface. And this is inconceivable to most people. Most people just, like, they can't get this level of dharma. You know, where Vasudeva had promised Kamsa, I'll give you all my kids, but when Krishna's born, he lies. And he takes Krishna across the Yuna and he drops him off in Vrindavan, and he gives Kamsa someone else's child. He breaks his promise. Uh, or, or apparently violating dharma. What to speak of the gopis running to Krishna in the middle of the night and violating dharma and, and so many things that appear to be violating dharma but are really at a higher purpose. So we should be honest. What is best for me now? Honest, what do I need? If I need to be married, then be married. Better to be married and have kids and a home and money and a car, or two cars, whatever, than to be a false renunciate and then fall down and cause a disturbance. I should have guides who are caring, who care about me and who know me. I should have people I can consult with, that I trust, that I'm willing to follow. And these should be people who actually know something about me, who have my best interest in mind and are going to know enough about me that their sentiment of having their best interest, my best interests in heart will work because they know who I am. <laughs> and I should be very wary of just jumping to conclusions about other people's lives and what's best for them. And uh, I remember one time many years ago being very disturbed at the choices of somebody that I cared about. And I, I was praying to the deity very, you know, please, please uh, don't let this person make this choice. Uh, this person should go on the fastest, easiest way. And the answer I got in my heart is this is the fastest, easiest way for this person. All right, we have about seven minutes for questions, comments, corrections, chastisements. I would really suggest those who are interested in this complexity of Dharma uh, to please uh, study hermeneutics. Maybe if the Bhakti Center is interested, you could arrange. It's a uh, it's an eight-session course, uh, one and a half to two hours each, and uh, requires some homework and some study and like that. But if the Bhakti Center wanted to sponsor this, the members of the Shastric Advisory Council teaching hermeneutics, we could probably uh, do that. All right, so let's see what we have here. Um, what we should accept as a norm and what should be exceptions that prove the norm. In most traditional societies, what Yadu is describing is a norm and skipping the progression is not the norm. Yes, that is a fact. Uh, Prabhupada reversing that for his followers. Prabhupada did that at a certain point in time. So when Prabhupada first started the movement, he basically got everybody married. And he was sending married couples to go preach. And at a certain point, he did what he called battlefield commissions, where he gave young men, I mean, sometimes 20 years old, sannyas with the idea that that would create a lot of preachers. But it didn't work very well. I think Jaidwai Jiswami figured out about 80% of them did not keep their sannyas. But Prabhupada's initial thing was the norm, and Prabhupada's books, he generally preaches the norm. I have one god sister who said people should fight hard not to marry. That there should be a, a societal norm that people marry, and I know this is terrible to say in 2021, and marry young. The people should marry, and they should marry young. I mean, this is like... Ah, people think marriage should be when you're 35. That's nuts. 
marriage should be at the peak of desire and fertility in, in the psycho in the psychology and in, the, in biology. I mean, just sorry. I believe that the laws of nature and the laws of God are are synonymous, and by biology and psychology, people's main desires are peaking when they're young, and that's when people should marry and have babies and make money and all that kind of thing. That should be the norm. With exceptions. With exceptions. We just had the disappearance day of Narutamadas Thakur. He never married. So the people should be allowed to be exceptional if they're actually exceptional and not just for status. Um, any other questions, comments? Hey, Krishna, Mother. Hey, Krishna. Yes. Um, yeah, my question is in reference to when you were talking about accepting authority, mm. you know, and if you're just accepting authority when they agree with you, then you're only accepting yourself as authority. That's correct. Right, so I'm wondering about like a hypothetical. Let's say, let's take your example, right, where somebody told you to do something that was not right for you, right? Yes. Now, supposing your spiritual master had given you an instruction that just didn't feel right for you, you know, what, how, to, how to reconcile this? Well, in the, in the case that I was talking about, um, I was able to go to my authority's authority and uh, get it nullified. And I actually ended up getting a written legal agreement about what I would do and not do. That was how I dealt with it. Uh, if you're in a situation where you can't do that, I, I really like what this one Christian author uh, said. Thank you. Careful little crack up there. So oh, okay. Tilt it. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. Go check out the flowers on the altar. And the new and my daughter yeah, was, I was bringing I was, me breakfast. Yeah. I mean, what um, what this very famous Christian writer, Helen Andelin, says in her book, Fascinating Womanhood, is that you're not, the woman is not following the husband uh, to follow the husband. She's followed the husband to follow God, who says, follow your husband. And if your husband makes a mistake, uh, that better to be obedient that making a mis- that being disobedient is much more sinful than making a mistake. And if your husband is making a mistake and you follow out of obedience to God, then God will bless you and he'll make the mistake turn out in a wonderful way. So I think that's a general principle, that if your authority is making a mistake, if they're not malicious, they're just making a mistake, they're not evil, they're not exploited, but they're just making a mistake. And you follow out of obedience to God, because God wants you to be obedient, that everything will be adjusted. Uh, but, you know, there is a line. There is a line over which one should not cross. And again, it's not possible to get some rule book where we just say, which line is it? Which line is it? It's going to be, really have to look at the circumstances. Is the authority actually wicked and exploited? Or is the authority just, they just don't know you that well, they're just making a mistake? And what's going on here? What's the cost of obedience? What's the cost of disobedience? 
do I have other recourses? I mean, it's it, it's not a simple path. I can't just say, under this circumstance, do this. Under this circumstance, do this. Under this circumstance. It's not like that. We can talk about principles. The principle is generally we should follow our authorities even when we're pretty sure that they're wrong. We certainly can discuss with them. We can... Sometimes we can go to their higher authority. Ultimately, we can go to the highest authority that's God. There are times when we should put our foot down and say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this. Even if the person's guru, even if the person's parent, even whatever. Sometimes we put our foot down and say, I'm not doing this. Like Yadu did. So I'm not doing this. And sometimes things are so extreme that we, that we abandon that authority entirely. Now, that should be very rare. Nowadays, that's very common but exactly what situation for which person comes under that category is, is not the kind of thing that we can talk about as a general thing. We're personalists, and we have to look at a personal situation here. Um, what do we do with people who, who manipulate us spiritually? Again, uh, that depends. That depends. To always just say, well, I'm going to walk away and I'm only going to follow people that I agree with all the time, then we have no authority and we have no shelter at all. All right, I know it is 8 o'clock and it's time to greet the deities there. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Shiva Prabhupada Ki Jai.